Hi, everybody. How's it going? And welcome to the Debutify podcast, the premier e-commerce podcast brought to you by Debutify. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and today I'll be sitting down with Tom Shea, the co-founder and chief revenue officer of Agile Media Group. The bulk of today's conversation is about out-of-home advertising and more specifically, truckside marketing and how it can help improve visibility for your business. Here's our interview now. Thomas, welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here on the Debutify podcast. How you doing? I'm great. Great. Happy you could join us. So Thomas, why don't you tell us a little bit about Agile Media Group? Yeah, absolutely. So Agile Media Group is the first tech-enabled out-of-home company that uh, leverages last-mile delivery trucks, turns them into large format mobile billboards on behalf of brands. And I think how we differentiate and why the company is exciting is we've brought a lot of those proof of performance elements that people have grown to accustom to see on um, the digital formats to the physical world. So things like return on ad spend, cost to acquire a customer. And um, we've worked with a ton of brands since we launched and uh, seen great results. So it's been a blessing to be able to work with so many people in this industry and and be authentically and, and meaningfully helpful. No, that's very interesting work. So, so you specifically, what's your role in the company? Yes, yeah, so I'm the co-founder and chief revenue officer. I wouldn't index too heavily on the title because that's all smoke and mirrors, as I'm sure you know, in, in the startup world. I do a little bit of everything. I'd say my main function is focusing on brand direct sales at the company. Okay, cool. So about, I guess, the business model, kind of break that down a little bit. So you work with the trucking companies as well as the people who wish to advertise on the truck, right? So yeah, can you break that down a little bit for me and how that works? Yeah, we took probably the two two areas that couldn't be further apart. Um, and it's hilarious because the personalities involved are so different also. I feel like it's turning me into a little bit of like a multiple personalities person. But so on the trucking side, essentially what we learned was um, a handful of players control the majority of assets on the road. And so the reason that was important is as we were trying to figure out which assets made sense to do business with, we had to figure out which assets had the greatest utility, time spent on the road in these dense urban areas, racking up a ton of views. And so we struck a partnership with those asset aggregators to get all of the GPS information for all of those vehicles, simulate them and understand that honestly, only a sliver of the asset supply is actually worth doing business with. And, and that's important because we put our name behind performance. We show things like CAC and ROAS. So after figuring out those partnerships, we essentially uh, earned the rights to advertise on these vehicles. And then what we've done on the brand-facing advertising side is not only give people a large format asset to advertise on, but also build in the technology layer that allows those people to justify and receive in return the performance of their media investment. Those things that people have really gotten used to seeing on digital. I think there's an interesting example here is like, this is not necessarily something that is new in the industry in terms of proof of performance. It's new for this format. And I think when we look at the history of media spend and how that's sort of changed hands, it used to be in these formats, but now it's 92% plus digital. And for good reason, like you needed to be able to justify and, you know, if you have stakeholders to bring along for the process, prove prove the ROI that existed here. But what we saw play out is like, you know, people all went to digital, they all went to digital at the same time, and they put downward pressure on the yield that existed in those channels and started to compete it away. And so as people, you know, we're spending all their money on Google search, Facebook, TikTok, Amazon ads, it's a finite number of channels. And there's a lot of brands competing in the same arena. So being able to bring something to market that gave everyone those tools and things they had grown accustomed to and honestly expect and being able to prove the value of the format in a way that people haven't been able to traditionally, 
has just been helpful in terms of driving adoption and and helping these brands along as they get to the different inflection points of their uh, brand journey. Because it, it definitely feels like a, a market that isn't as flooded, which has to give you a bit of an advantage, you know, from your media group's perspective, as well as the people who are trying to advertise with you is that you could actually sell that to them and they'll, they'll listen because I think it's pretty obvious, you know? And it's weird, you know, like everyone's looking for that arbitrage, right? If everyone ran the same playbook, it would be really hard to compete and differentiate it as a brand. I think something that's really interesting, just to riff on that a little bit, is like when we started, we took business from all verticals, like HR software, all the way to CPG, all the way, you know, and what we realized is this format specifically should specialize and it should be CPG, adult beverage and franchises. And the reason for that is this only showed in the data. It took like doing business with 75 plus clients to figure this out for ourselves. People don't know that the trucks are ads. Like people think they're part of the supply chain for those brands. And so as you think of an ecosystem where we have been trained, they're like brand founders and e-commerce managers have been trained to find the customer. We're creating something that allows the customer to find them. And there's something magical from that, not only in the surface, but in the data where People are going, okay, I guess this brand is moving a ton of products because they have all these trucks because we're anchored on Amazon trucks, we're anchored on alcohol delivery trucks. And that only doesn't only apply to like customers, it applies to investors, it applies to buyers mm-hmm. at retail. And so if everyone's thinking this brand is punching above their weight, delivering a ton of product, they're making the assumption that their neighbors and their peers are consuming that product. And what we saw play out in the data for those categories specifically was increase sales online, increase website traffic, increase sales at the retail, like scan level and increased engagement on the digital ad buys that they were making simultaneously. No. So that, I mean, that practically answers my next question, which was going to be, you know, what the, what the psychology of truck side marketing is and why it works from what I'm hearing you say, Thomas, is that, you know, generally speaking, you see, say a Budweiser truck and it just says Budweiser on the side. Now you can actually give that space to other people or, you know, since it is digital, you can layer ads on top of each other, right? Is that something you guys do? So it's static ads, um, but augmented with digital advertising. So we can essentially the vector or source of truth for doing attribution is geofences that are constantly drawn around the truck. And we capture people's mobile phones that have location services enabled. It allows us to do a lot of things, but the to answer your question directly is you can pipe all of those things to paid social, to programmatic networks, et cetera, and re-message that exposed audience with advertisements after the fact. So there is a dynamic layer to it. We actually started the business doing digital screens and ended up in static to be able to show at, uh, investors that we could scale this business quickly. It was just screens were very expensive from a CapEx perspective, sort of walked into that learning, to be honest. I'd love to sit here and be like, we had this master plan, but I think anyone that's on this journey knows there is dumb luck involved. And I'm willing to say that that was one that we definitely... Uh, just walked into and feel fortunate that we did. Like Bob Ross said, just a a happy accident. Right. Right. That's what we're here for. Do you guys on a, on a more like tactile level, do you guys mock up and design the advertisements or does the company wishing to advertise do that? It's a great question. Um, And it's related to that psychology question, to be honest. So when we started the business and honestly, truthfully, even now, like majority of relationships, people are providing artwork for us. I think what we sort of learned over time and and through data is we should be designing that artwork. And the reason for that is 
if there's information asymmetry between us and our clients and that we have, we're sitting on a lot more data, no matter how thoughtful we've been about trying to lay out best practices and communicate those things, ultimately we have an advantage in that context. And so if you have all, if you have that information and asymmetry and you're going to report out on performance, especially it follows that the incentives are aligned to want to do the best thing or the right thing possible for everyone involved. And so I think what we saw play out is like people, either they were slammed with capacity or just, you know, some of these important elements we were highlighting were not heading home. They'd be trying to retrofit successful social media ad creative for the format. This is not a format where that works. It goes back to behavioral psychology to a degree. You know, you look at a campaign like Fly by Jing, which is one of our clients, the fill of the 26 by nine foot panels is the same color red as a stop sign. Very intentional. Because if you go back to psychology, when you see a stop sign, a brake light, a red light, you're coached by society to stop, to want to stop and pay attention and look at your surroundings. And so when you see something that's like often a few feet from your face, you're not like that corner of the eye glance, which so often happens in out of home becomes a full head turn like, oh, what was that? And that's just one example. But, you know, there's clear trends in the data, like hero shots perform better than lifestyle shots. The back panel is much smaller than the side panel, but you can get a lot away with a lot more copy on the back panel because the dwell time is vehicular traffic, whereas the side panels skew towards pedestrian traffic. Well, the, the back panel gets a dwell time of six to 30 seconds. You can actually get a message across and you'll see on Amazon trucks, it says on the back, Amazon Prime, a whole truckload more of those trucks. And on the side, it's just the Amazon smiley face. It's because that side panel's dwell time is about six seconds on average. So there's a lot of these interesting behavioral, like psychology design considerations that admittedly, you think about where we're sitting, it, it'll become a business risk if to us, if we continue to let people fully own the creative elements of this, because if we're, if we're buying us because of performance and we have all this performance data, I want this to go as well as possible. So I'm going to get involved. And yes, that puts all of the campaign details on us. So if it doesn't go well, that falls on us. It's sort of a bet on yourself, I think. And uh, if you have confidence, you shouldn't be fearful to do so. No, that's a great answer. And it makes a lot of sense, you know, when, when you break it down in terms of, you know, the behavioral psychology and, and the colors and the, and the space on where the truck works. I mean, I worked for a company where we, where we tried to retrofit a lot of stuff for social media and it, and it just doesn't work. You know, so my, my last job was in like a TV show. So trying to like take those little sound bites and put them into social media is trying to like you know, force a, you know, a square peg in a round hole sometimes. And there were times that it worked, but you know, you have to have like the inside track, the way that you do to articulate that to your advertisers. Yeah. And you know, just like, where are you in the marketing funnel? Like, yeah, there's performance, but I'm not going to sit here and try to pretend that out of home it's, it's at the top. It's at like the reach frequency awareness consideration elements. And that requires a different style than what you're going to put in front of someone that's browsing TikTok where they're already staring at it. You got to pull these people in. And so knowing the strategies that help um, facilitate the, the desired action uh, provide meaningful value. And it's also not a reasonable expectation for someone who's buying so many different media formats to like know all of these things. They should be able to confident, really rely on their vendors and partners to 
fill in the information gaps where they exist. And you actually bring up a good point, you know, bringing people in. So in in like an out-of-home advertising, the action is a little less, I can do it right now. So for example, in like a digital space, they give you the ad and there's usually a link right there that I can click immediately compared to out-of-home the action takes a little more steps to get to. Is is that a pretty big obstacle to jump through? Or how do you determine what those actions are to make them as easy as possible for the um, you know potential consumer? Yeah, I think it depends on the objective of the business. If you're on like a treadmill, you know, I can see why you want to sit in the digital media spend uh, arena and like just keep churning through that and keep trying to increase it. I think what's really important here is like, regardless of the format, there is a marketing funnel. And the top two elements, this consideration phase, the peak propensity to buy and get them to that intent is seven to nine impressions. Right now, if you are spending a $40 CPM on Meta to provide the function of not only the top of funnel, but the mid funnel and lower funnel, you're essentially overpaying. And it's simple as that because the CPMs on these out-of-home formats, while less targeted, get so much more impressions at a low CPM that there's an arbitrage opportunity by combining those two functions. And I don't think anyone should ever pause digital marketing and say, we're going to do 100% out-of-home. Like that would never be my advice. It's more, are you at a point where you're ready to be pulling in um, a much wider consumer base and being able to support it with a digital media spend once you get that base into lower down the marketing funnel? And so that's really, I think, my stance on the equation. I think there's definitely space for both. And if you use together in tandem, this sum of the parts is greater than the individual parts themselves. I think that's the key is, is the tandem. But there's only a finite amount of money, as, as you know, sometimes. So I kind of want to double back and, and ask what some of the metrics are, the specific metrics that prove the effectiveness of Agile Media Group and even more specifically truckside marketing. Yeah. So let me talk about the attribution layer real quick. So I think it's something people will find pretty interesting and, and honestly clever. Okay. So essentially what's happening is there's a GPS in every single asset that has an API that gives you latitude, longitude, and timestamp in real time. The back end with software, we are drawing a geofence around that asset every second capturing mobile phones that have location services enabled. It gets a little deeper. We are able to resolve to their home IP address, capture their desktop, connect the TV, other devices for the sake of controlling for loss in the equation. But more importantly, let's just talk directly about e-commerce attribution. So if we're geofencing around this vehicle, we're capturing a population of individuals and we're putting pixels on the website, usually on the homepage, usually on the post checkout page, that are listening for that same population that was exposed to the vehicle. And while that's a cool story in theory, like, oh, someone saw the truck and then took an action, it tells you nothing meaningful. And the reason that is, is that's one touch in what's probably a, a multimedia mix strategy that has, let's say, nine touches in total. So from where we're sitting as Agile Media Group, you cannot claim that conversion and you cannot attribute that directly to the truck side media element. So the business case became, how do you control all other variables so that the only difference between two populations is one group saw trucks and one group did not, but both groups have been equally exposed to every form of in, uh, paid or organic media investment out there that you're pursuing. And so the way we've done that is I explained what the hypothesis group looks like. It's that geofence around a branded vehicle. Well, we are running a ghost truck. Let me be very clear. This is not a second truck. This is just software. We are running a ghost truck at all times that lags behind the branded truck. 10 minutes backwards on that identical GPS route. And so as you picture this branded truck 
running through society. If you were to go 10 minutes back in time on that truck's route, drop a pin, we're drawing an identically sized geofence, capturing a population of mobile phones that we know have not been exposed to the branded vehicle, but will have also had equal likelihood to have been exposed to every form of media that you're pursuing. And what we report out on and what we measure is the difference in conversion behavior between those two discrete audiences. So if a thousand people converted in the control group, 1500 people in the hypothesis group, we'd be able to say with confidence and statistical rigor that your $500 or sorry, your X dollar media investment agile got you these 500 incremental conversions, which gets you a row ass of X, CAC of Y. That's been our way to think that's, it's a little dense, but it is, I think, why we've been successful as a company is being able to prove performance. And also I think, the evaluation criteria is fundamentally different for something so far up the marketing funnel. We index more on like, hey, here's the benchmark of performance from an LTV to CAC ratio for the entire sort of customers that we've ever run. And here's how you're performing relative to those folks, knowing that out of home is like a reach frequency, sort of longer tail in terms of, hey, is this going to help our brand? It's something that will continue to uh, provide value over the long term. Hopefully, and obviously, feel free to poke and ask any additional questions, but hopefully that's a helpful summary view of how this all comes together. No, it is. So what I'm essentially hearing, Thomas, is that you found a way to prove via these ghost trucks that it's not correlation without causation. You actually were able to prove that there is a cause and effect, and it wasn't by some other outside circumstance, say say they were all coming out of a restaurant and they were talking about something at that restaurant or, or something like that, you can actually prove, no, it was this ad. It wasn't just, this is what someone, a consumer was thinking about at that time. I think it's pretty clever if, I, if I'm being honest. It also, um, I mean, importantly, it takes a level of scale. Um, like not everyone's going to have location services on their phone. So if, if people want a topical time example, like figuring out that the vaccine was something that could be used widespread was, hey, we need to test this on a certain threshold of people to, to have confidence that how it behaves with the sample population is true of how it's the broader population that is that is given the vaccine is going to experience this. Same is true with the attribution model for Adipom, knowing that not everyone has location services enabled. We need to make sure we have a certain duration of campaign, a certain number of assets to make sure we're getting a large enough sample size to confidently report out on those numbers. So what industries do you specifically work with? Yeah, I guess even for, for someone who might be listening, who's like, oh, that sounds interesting to me. Maybe I want to work with them. What what kind of industries do you stick in and, and what's your biggest client? Yeah, CPG, and which I'd say is really broad. Like I'm talking snacks to like beauty. Um, so anything in the CPG space, adult beverage and I say QSR, but like anything sort of franchise model related, anything with like a retail element is, is sort of a great fit. Because in addition to e-commerce stuff, we can show foot traffic lift into stores. So like if we're advertising for Chipotle, for example, how many people did we drive there over a control group? Our biggest clients, um, some quick hits, Glossier, Planet Fitness, PepsiCo, T-Mobile. So definitely in that Fortune 1000 range at this point. But it's not where we started. And it's actually a fun story. So I'll share it. Um, when when we raised money, we, and this was such a, this was a big bet and it could have easily gone the other way. But fortunately, it seems to have played out how we hoped it would. Again, some, some luck embedded in all this, I think. But when we were starting the company, we took a very intentional go-to-market strategy that was informed by how podcast marketing and influencer marketing played their hands, where... For emerging brands that are, you know, digitally native D2C companies, 
we forced price arbitrage. Like we made sure that this was the best buy if you were going to buy out of, out of home, period. And that required burning venture money. It required operating at a loss. But at the same time, we were not bashful to them that our strategy here was to give you a good deal that you'll never be able to find again. But we're taking your logos and we're going to the Fortune 500s. And we're saying, hey, these companies, all these emerging brands, they're stealing market share from you. Look what they're doing that you're not doing. And so if you look at how podcast marketing played out, like my ads used to be Manscaped, Tommy John Underwear, and Casper. Now it's Facebook saying they're not creepy and it's McDonald's. And that's true. Like that was my podcast advertisements this morning. You know, that is all of a sort of like they saw that all these emerging brands were extracting price arbitrage and they had two options. One, make a much bigger bet that extracts a greater amount of arbitrage and reap the benefits or reprice the product so that no one else in these emerging brands um, ecosystems can afford to compete in this arena. And so those clients, a lot of them are fairly new to, to the agile brands, had 75 plus CPG clients like Fly by Jing, Gia, and all these incredible, awesome brands that I love working with, that we made sure that they were getting hooked up because as helpful as it, it's great to be in a position to be helpful. And I love that. But it was also very strategic and needed to get what is ultimately a weird format onto the map. That's sort of how we played it. It's It's been a lot of fun working with those founders too. And being able, being in a position, honestly, in life, just to be able to be like, listen, we don't know how this is going to go in the early days, but I do know if you're going to buy out of home, this is going to be a better buy than anything else in the market because we're subsidizing it with venture money. Well, you're minimizing the risk for these companies as much as you can when it's less money. Totally. People loved the performance element too. Like, you know, getting something that's mm-hmm. felt actionable in return is uh, definitely a, a selling prop, especially with all the Facebook, iOS 14. Like, everyone was looking for a solution. And, and this seems like they still are, which is great. And it's a win win. I mean, they're, they're getting a, a, a smoking deal and you're building legitimacy for your brand at the same time for the long term. After looking at your website, you know, your national business strategy, at least when I looked at the map, is definitely national. I mean, it's East Coast to West Coast. It is North to South. And I I can imagine that requires a lot of hands-on work in terms of actually installing these ads on on the trucks. So how do you physically do that while keeping the process organized? Because I can imagine you guys can't all be everywhere at once. Yeah, no, it, um, Listen, our operations team is lights out. They largely came from the company I previously worked at, in which we were all ops people. So I started as the chief operating officer at Agile, ended up on the sales side, but that's where my roots are. Don't get me wrong, it's a complicated business with a lot of moving parts, but um, our networks run deep at this point. That's all there really is to say. Like, I think part of the moat is how complicated it is, right? Like, it's it's not the easiest thing to execute on. You know, we essentially try to be invisible to all of the asset owners and operators because, you know, you can't meaningfully get in the way of their business. They have routes to run. They have delivery expectation performance elements that they need to maintain. So... Not only is it just complicated, you got to do it during nights and weekends when they're um, not operating. It's complicated, but I guess one of the silver linings is a lot of the demand is fairly consolidated to major markets. So I think that's sort of a silver lining. And to be honest, I mean, to, to anyone listening, I would definitely be pushing people towards those major markets unless there was clear saturation or a business case that warranted going outside those because those, those mass urban markets is where the media dollar clearly goes furthest. 
that said, you know, happens all the time. Someone's trying to support or launch a new market or support a new retailer, and they want to really show up and show that they're investing in that relationship. That's a pretty logical reason that has, you know, you maybe take a little bit of a step back on performance, but, you know, lock a retailer relationship, which will over the long term provide tens of millions of dollars to your brand. Those are sort of the business cases where I see people start to leave those top markets. But, you know, like probably 50% plus of revenue is in the top five markets. So it makes it a little easier, not too much easier, but a little bit. I get that. Well, I, I'm from Richmond, Virginia, and I see them all the time here. I can't imagine we're like a, a top market, like a a New York City or anything like that. And even then, I I feel like they're impactful around here. You know what it is? It's also like the format can go places other forms that home can't. You know, something that comes up a lot is the Hamptons. Like there are two billboards on the way to the Hamptons. They are on a Native American reservation. So that's a loophole. There's no other buys out there. And obviously that's a very desirable market for luxury brands. How do you get in there with all these ordinances? There's nothing that says we cannot advertise on assets um, or people who operate those assets can put branding on them. It's really just like sometimes we'll get bought because we're the only game in town. (laughs) And that's pretty nice too. So can you... um... Talk about the future of Agile Media Group. We were, we were talking before the show about you know what 2023 looks like. So you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, and hopefully this comes out after this launches. But I'm excited to talk about a product called Polygon because it's really different. It's just like a whole new category for us. But the reason I'm so excited about it is it was a reactionary build this time. Like we, you know, had the digital screens and then we pivoted and then realized people wanted attribution solved for. And so that was sort of like a, a journey. This one was like, we were hearing a consistent issue and we built against it. So I'll tell you about Polygon. Essentially what was happening when we were scaling the core product, which we'll call our virtual fleet product um, across the country is we had to buy all this location data by market. So started in New York, then LA, then Chicago. At a certain point, we're now operating in like 20, 25 markets actively. Um, it became less expensive to just buy the entire country's location data in bulk. And so we had all this location data um, that we needed to support the attribution model. And we had all this interesting geofencing technology. And in Q1, I started to hear something on these calls. And who knows if it was macroeconomic or if it was people's like natural evolution of CPG brands, which is where we, we spend most of our time. But everyone was moving from D to C to retail and focusing on their retail strategy. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. Um, fortunately, the, like we can still support this because we can find them assets that spend time giving exposure near a point of purchase. So if you launch in Whole Foods, we'll find, go through our supply, figure out routes that spend a lot of their time around those Whole Foods supporting those retailers. But I was like, what else can we build to help support these emerging brands? And so Polygon leverages all of the same technology, all that location data, all that geofencing, but it removes out of home from the equation and starts to become a digital product. And so if you're launching your product in Whole Foods, say you launch in 75 doors in the Northeast, it's pretty high stakes. And people are like, how do we support this? Let's buy some trucks. Let's do some sampling. Let's let's do all this. You know, it's like the most high stakes moment inflection point for a brand. Because if Whole Foods drops you, that has material impacts on your scale, velocity, ability to raise, mm-hmm. et cetera. You got to push and make the most of it for sure. Totally. So people, you know, doing all sorts of crazy stuff. So we started hand drawing geofences around these uh, retail locations. And this isn't like your Facebook, like, hey, let's draw a radius in a circle five miles around this Whole Foods. 
This is literally a geofence that will not pick up data unless someone enters that store. And what that allows us to do is capture the mobile phones that enter into that location, pipe them to paid social display networks, et cetera, and push ad creative that says, buy Flyby Jing at Whole Foods. And no longer does the KPI become D to C lift e-commerce traffic. It becomes what's happening with retail velocity. And the reason we built it was these brand founders, I could ask, like, these are my friends at this point. Like I've worked so closely with these people. I'm also a founder. Like I really care about these people. And so I built it as an emergency switch. I was like, not everyone's going to need this product, but everyone's going to want to know it exists because if things are not moving off the shelf, when you launch in Whole Foods, call me, we'll flip the switch. We will buy our way through this. Like we'll just uncapped frequency target these people with ads that say, go buy us in Whole Foods or like give some crazy offer um, to, to get them into store. What started to happen when we released it in beta is it took on a complete mind of its own. Hey, let's support retail to, hey, we sell sunscreen. Can you geofence the beaches and tell me who is there five times this summer? Because we want to hit them with D to C ads. I was like, oh God, all right, interesting. And then that just started to snowball. Like people did scale, sell ski apparel saying, can you geofence the ski mountains? Tell me who likely has a season pass. You have like people in the pet category that aren't yet in retail saying, can you get me all of the consumers that go to PetSmart or Petco more than three times in the past 90 days? You have the B2B conference people who drop like 200K to sponsor a conference saying, hey, can you geofence this conference? Get me those IDs. And then my personal favorite one, someone raising a Series A said, hey, can you geofence these 16 investor offices before we show up and pitch in person and just hammer them with ads so they know who we are before we walk in? which I, I did that one for free because I was like, dude, you, someone's thinking here. Like, I love this. And so you can see something that started as like a clear retail support product that has a lot of like the spirit and ethos of what we have been trying to do, build, building around like this category that we know we have clear success in. It's sort of just not only like helpful, but also a statement on how we're trying to build this business. I think something that's became clear with the truck side element is Pricing parity with billboards, technology parity with billboards will always have a clear advantage in these categories because of our formats psychology component. So if you know you have sustainable competitive advantage in a specific category, how do you continue to build around that category? And so knowing that people were stressed about this, and this is what was keeping them at night, we're able to build something, go to market with something that can be authentically helpful. You just always do more listening than talking. Those things reveal themselves. And so it's been a lot of fun to build that product. It's been in beta since like, I don't know, beginning of Q3, probably 35 or so brands that have been using it. And it's crushing, to be honest. So I'm really excited to launch it as a standalone. When will it be out? So it's like technically everything's built. We just have like none of the marketing material or any like the landing page or things you're supposed to have when you do this stuff. Um, but we're thinking January is when it will officially go live after the holidays. Cool. I can't believe that hasn't existed already, you know, honestly. And coolest part of that is that the idea becomes open source. Like this is how I want to implement it. it. It's not like a one size fits all thing. It's and it's super flexible too. Like if you're launching retail nationwide um with a retailer, like, yeah, these trucks are perfect for the top five markets. They'll probably outperform this strategy because this strategy still requires Zuckerberg still is getting like 98% of the budget when we use Polygon, right? Like we're still beholden to those CPMs. So the truck side still has a ton of value in supporting the major markets. But what do you do with these secondary tertiary markets where out of homes still going to be pretty expensive? The ROI will decrease as you go lower and lower in terms of markets. You can't ignore that 
piece of the pie. Um, mm -hmm. So it gave something that allowed us to help the brand at like every part of its life cycle. We're pretty intentional. Our retention rate is high because when brands aren't ready for the out of home, we tell them and like, we're like, listen, there's not enough margin. There's like, if we don't think we have a winning hand, we're not putting you in this situation. There's an option where we can continue to be helpful, nurture these brands along and help them solve for what they're trying to solve for sort of across the maturity spectrum. It's cool. I, I love it. I love the idea, you know, to kind of stay on the, on the development topic. Have you seen um, any sort of developments incorporating, say, augmented reality marketing with the truck side advertisements. I feel like that's got to be up your lane, Thomas. Here's something I'm playing with. So like going back to the color psychology, anything that can turn out, I saw it out of the corner of my eye into a full head turn, I think moves the needle meaningfully. So right now I'm in the process of lobbying some of my larger beauty clients to put uh, eyelashes on the headlights to like, I don't know if you've ever seen like high school girls driving around with us. But it sounds silly. It sounds gimmicky. But let me make something very clear. If you look at Lyft, the rideshare service, mm -hmm. and you look at how they communicated to the market that they existed, they put mustaches on the grill of the car. And that's sort of a blast from the past. But if you type in Lyft mustaches and go to the 70th page on Google search, there are still articles explaining how meaningful and impactful that was for their brands. Now we're starting to think like, if we're reporting out on performance, what else can you do to move the needle? And it's things like that. It's things like, you know, I'm getting pictures of these trucks um, running around these markets from people on the fourth floor of a skyscraper. And it goes, okay, like the top is blank. Put, put an Easter egg, like put a, you know, if you're glossy, put you look good in a winky face and like a QR code, because that's memorable. People will remember that and it'll stand out. And so not yet with augmented reality, I'm sure there's elements to that. I think we can talk a little bit about this, but like celebrity led brands, I've always been anti QR code, anti link tree on these assets because our attribution model is much stronger. But now with this emergence of celebrity led brands, we can turn these things into first party data generation flywheels where it's like, okay, Halsey's brands, AF94, like put a QR code on it. It says scan to win backstage uh, passes to my show. And then you get their SMS number, you get their email, and then you turn a top of funnel impression into something that you start hitting them with emails, you start hitting them with texts, and you turn something that, you know, it becomes this gift that continues to give. So I'm always thinking outside the box. I sort of suggested um, mm -hmm. kind of keep indexing on how you can use psychology to drive performance. Here's a freebie. I, I don't understand why someone doesn't have like a one-way mirror on the windshield where it says Fig Newton from the outside, but it's perfectly clear from the inside. Run me back because if it's a freebie, I got to make sure I, uh... so if I'm it's almost like a, like a, like a one-way mirror, right? So if you look, you can look extremely clearly out of the windshield, but anyone who's looking at your windshield would see an advertisement. Yeah, totally. And there are vinyls that allow for that. Cause I know they put them on the sides. It's probably a hazard to put it on the front. I, I just, um, I don't know. It's come a long way to be honest, but there's definitely a lot of creative stuff. Like you could also turn these people into sampling. People are always asking the driver like, Oh, I love that brand. Do you have, do you have any products? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you know, if you could turn that person into a, a brand advocate, you know, you can start doing sampling at scale and stuff like that. So there's a never ending list. We got our work cut out for us, but changing something where you have to prove performance 
makes your, your baseline is always thinking in through this lens of like, what's mm-hmm. the weird stuff that you can do? Well, I appreciate that. You're always thinking outside of the box. I think that's, that's very cool. And, and I kind of want to expand on it actually a little bit. So, you know, probably the first out of home marketing or advertising that I ever remember was like probably on a beach. And that was probably seeing the banner from from the airplane is probably the first time I actually like remember it. And, you know, from there, we've seen buses and bus benches and billboards and now, you know, truckside marketing. And I've even seen choreographed drone advertisements, which I, which I think is pretty cool. It also gives me a bit of like the oh my gosh, is the sky up for sale now? Like that that is some dystopian a little bit. But is that the future of out of home marketing, and if not, you know, where does it go from here? So, truck side is kind of the next drones. Where's the whole landscape go from here? On the drone topic, because it's one I had the same thing. I was like, "Damn, we're, we're going to the skies now." But something that we learned just from like when we were doing digital screens and like a lot of legal due diligence is there's a there's legislation called the Highway Beautification Act of 1960. It's like the prevailing legislation in this context, and it is what limited the erection of billboards to a point where like, hey, why aren't there, why don't we just put a thousand billboards? Like, tell me why I can't. And essentially in the in the spirit of beautifying the environment and like retaining natural beauty in society, they essentially made this law where they restrict the cadence and aggregate number of billboards in society such that if you exceed it, they withhold federal state highway funding for you, for your state. So there's actually been zero net new billboards added to circulation in over 10 years. The trend right now to answer your question is um, digitizing them because it allows folks to service more advertisers when there's a scarcity of supply. It also allows you to get pretty intelligent about like you think of programmatic ad networks like this real time bidding and selling and trading of media space online. There's definitely a movement in out of home right now, digital out of home where you can start to get really clever and smart about uh, when and where you're executing. So like when we were doing digital screens, part of the beauty and why we were so um, enthralled by that business model was like, okay, you have this truck that has digital screens. Well, you know the your geofencing around it, you can pick up this information about the viewers. If you have a Hispanic population, switch the creative, the copy to Spanish. And the second you, you know, reach a different type of consumer, switch it to something that they clearly would index to things like that. So I think more and more we'll see the emergence of that in the out of home space. If you were to ask me like what trend is here to stay and clearly like where the, and it's a pretty small industry. So I feel like I have a decent pulse in it. Like that is what people are most excited about. It removes a lot of the barriers. People at a, like can enter at a low price point. Um, there's just a lot to love, I think, with the digital side of things. Do we need more screens in our lives? No. It's sort of, I guess, play the hand you're dealt. The incentives are aligned for people to push the, the business in that direction and get it, honestly, get it closer to parity with how buying other media looks and feels and acts. Well, and I, I think it's interesting, you know, in the truck side marketing, the ad comes to you. You put the ad on wheels so it's going to hit more people than if it's just sitting in place. And that that seems logical to me. I know that the data isn't, isn't so epso facto like that, but... Yeah. And when we, when, when, if we run into supply constraints on the top performing assets, like there's a business case for digitizing, can we build a billion dollar business without doing so? I think absolutely. But 
um, it'd be fun to sort of go back to our roots because like we built that software in 2018 of like, okay, make this ad change when it passes exit five to whatever's off exit six or like, you know, you're near MSG, put the next score in real time. And you look at like what Firefly and the taxi top digital providers have done. It's largely in that spirit. You know, it's, it's going to get better. It's going to get smarter over time. Yeah, but it's a trend that a lot of people are excited about, including myself. Very cool. So before we uh, wrap up, the last question I always ask is, I think it's extremely important, especially in the e-commerce and business space to um, ensure a healthy work-life balance. I know a lot of you guys, a lot of us work like dogs. So it's important to make sure that you know mental health and a healthy work-life balance is taken care of as well. How do you spend your free time? It's a great question. I'll be honest. You're right. Here's the difference, though. I think it's easy to justify working those hard hours when you're really passionate and excited about something. Sure. And so that's largely, I think, what's driven it for me personally. How I spend my time outside of work, definitely for better, or for worse than sort of these founder circles. I, I find them like it probably started with a sales agenda and quickly developed into a sense of community because I was finding that these fellow founders they just get it and they can empathize with the things you're going through. So while it's tangentially work-related, like I found a true sense of community. And so spending time with those people, even if it's some like founder dinner, it quickly leaves feeling like work and gives you sort of that grounding and just comfort knowing you're like not alone here. And these people want to help. And not only just from like a work perspective, from to your point, a work-life balance perspective. And so that's where I spend a lot of my time these days. Obviously, the quick hits of like, you know, traveling and snowboarding and, and things like that. We'll see. Maybe I'll call my shot here. I think if money didn't matter and I could do anything I want, I'd love to end up in the music industry um, in some sort of event production capacity. If this works, I'm disappearing for two years and re-emerging as a DJ and then getting all of my e-commerce growth hackers to help push my uh, DJ career onto the mainstream. Well, maybe you can get a helmet like Daft Punk and you can just moonlight. Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> something I'd love to do, but I got to figure out how to do it first and make time to learn how to do it first. Well, that's really, really cool, Thomas. I fully support it. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Do you have anything you'd like to plug before we head out? No, I think when this goes live, Polygon will have launched. So if you're focusing on retail um, and, and that's something that's keeping up at night, definitely drop us a line. Or the alternative is if there's a clear congregation point for your target consumer, that's another great place it slots in in the absence of having a retail element. But no, outside of that, to everyone listening, a fellow founder that definitely gets it and wants to be helpful in ways that are not just self-serving and media focused. I think what's been beautiful about this is I talked to a lot of brands and I've started to put together like who, what, like what technology stack, what vendors are behind these brands that are consistently crushing and being able to communicate those things on calls, even when they have nothing in return for myself is something that I love to do. So I'd say my superpower is all things media. If I can be helpful in connecting the dots for you, if you're struggling with something, drop me a line. I'll make sure I take care of you. Wonderful. Wonderful to reach out and be of service. So Thomas, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, my friend. Yeah, this has been a blast. Thanks so much for having me on. I want to thank my guest, Tom Shea, for joining us on the show and tune in next week when I talk with Marin Ishtvanich, the senior media buyer for Inspire Brands Group about maximizing the potential of Facebook ads and media buying. 
For more information about Tom, you can follow him on Twitter at tshay0314 or connect with him on LinkedIn. And to learn more about Agile Media Group, you can check out their website, agile.co, spelled A-D-G-I-L-E dot C-O, or follow them on Twitter at Agile Media GRP. That's our show. Thanks for listening, and we hope you tune in to new episodes being published every Tuesday. Until then. Thank you.